Howdy, people. Welcome to another episode of Squinting at the Good with Nemec and Trox. Howdy. 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 Uh, yeah. So it's been it's been a couple of uh, a couple of weeks. Uh, we got off our schedule pretty hard due to uh, the normal drolls of life, unfortunately. But we're back for uh, an extra special two-part episode. Uh, so we'll go ahead and do two episodes for the stream, and then. Uh, we'll probably release the second episode on the podcast uh, probably later in the week. Yeah, so you Twitch viewers uh, get uh, get the extra get the extra special two-parter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're probably going to move the the uh, the schedule instead of a Monday night to a Thursday night because I think that's going to work better for us. And uh, we will ever so slowly endeavor to actually have a Twitch page with a schedule that uh, shows it in a way that yeah. people can actually see it. But you know, but part of the charm of squinting at the good is the fact that we don't do any of the things we uh, we aspire to. You know. Yeah, this is a good point. You know, it's not like we're it's not like we're trying to uh, earn a living doing this or uh, actually. No, but put but but but, but we value. are but we are but we are somehow analogically you know. Yeah, we are analogically understanding our own philosophy in the context of our of our own failure to be good podcasters. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. We're not achieving greatness; we're just squinting at it. Yes, and you know, we we, we do aspire to greatness as yeah. good podcasters, yeah. but yeah, slowly. we understand that this is more or less Im it's impossible to reach the platonic form of true of of one hundred percent platonic true form of podcaster. A podcaster. Yeah. yeah, I think that's more or less impossible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless you're like Joe Rogan, I guess, right? Is he, is he the current platonic form of podcaster? Uh, I mean, who? That's a good question. I, well, There's no, a couple there, of good there podcasts out there. But there can't be a platonic form. That's the point. That you, mm. That's the philosophical point. We can't have the platonic form in this world. I suppose The world so. of being and becoming. I know? suppose so. He can, he, he, he's, he's the most, uh, most, most gazing, gazingly. Yeah, uh, he's, he's know, like he's, the philosopher he's, of them all, you know? Allegedly. 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 Yes. Uh, All right, but let's uh, let's turn to the uh, to uh, our major feature. Of yes. So season two, season two, season two has been marked with uh, Republic Roulette, where we will at random flip to a page in uh, the Republic, translated by oh, Alan Bloom, yeah, the good man himself, and uh, then we'll we'll go from there. Okay. So, uh, so did you go last time? Or did I go? Uh, last I time? went last time. Go for it. Okay. Well, you, okay. you'll get into the essay. You got Yeah, but you okay? So yeah. let's see. Let's see. This is book. Nine. Roman numerals. I am, really I, X is I am really bad at Roman numerals. I, I'm a Latin teacher, and I'm bad at the Roman numerals. Oh my goodness. Okay, so we're on book nine, Stephanus number uh, 581a through D. In case you didn't, in case you're following along with your own version of the Republic at home, let's see. Well, let's see. Take a look at here. We have um, pleasure from money to be a vulgar thing. That's interesting. Okay. That's a uh, strong contender. Whatever learn uh, let's see. Whatever learning doesn't bring honor to be smoke and nonsense. I like smoke and nonsense. I like that. It's not bad. It's not Wh bad. Whatever learning doesn't bring honor to be spoken smoke and nonsense. Okay. Um Yeah, I think I think you can just kind of pick pick any of those. I think those are all pretty pretty great. Uh what about uh, the spirited part is always wholly set on mastery, victory, and I, good I reputation? Think, I think that's the that's the phrase I'd like to talk about, but Ma I'm not sure which where we want to cut that. Mastery, victory, and good reputation. I actually think the spirited part uh, is set on mastery, victory, and good reputation might be interesting, but that's a bit long. That's a bit clunky, you it's know. A bit clunky. We like to mastery, keep short and, and good concise here. Yeah. Is that is that we're going on? Mastery. mastery, victory, and good reputation. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah. That's a title. That know? is a title. All right, the stream is being renamed. 
Mastery, mastery, victory, and good reputation. Good reputation. You're doing the, the meme format where you capitalize some letters and not. No, that was that was a typo. That was a typo, indeed. Okay, so let's see. Mastery, victory, and good reputation. Yes. In in the sense of the spirited part. Right. So these are the objects of the spirited yes. part. This is yes. what the spirited part aims towards. So I think I think firstly. Uh, we need to give context for our casual listeners at home. Uh, in Platonic philosophy, there was a model of the soul, uh, or the metaphysical or non-physical part of man. Uh, for Plato, he divided this up into three categories, or three, three sections. Uh, the first being the intellect, which he thought was, should be at the top of kind of a pyramid of, of order. In the middle, he had uh, something in, in Greek called thumos, which is often translated to spiritedness, which I'm almost almost positive is, is what Bloom is translating it as there. And uh, at the very bottom, we have the appetites, or the appetitive, the sensitive, the senses, right? And so uh, it's a big theme in the Republic, and he talks about diseased cities and diseased people as people who weren't guided by reason, but instead were guided by uh, a sense of spirited behavior or their appetites. So. The spirited behavior, he says, is set on mastery, victory, and good reputation. Yes. So I think the first two are very, are very obvious, at least from my understanding of, of spiritedness for the Greeks. But good reputation, I think, is, is very interesting and a little bit unexpected. Yeah. Uh, would you care to elaborate on why you think that is? It makes sense to me. But. Well, well, so I think I think it's a little bit unexpected because because the, the spirited part of the soul for Plato, and as described previously in the Republic, is uh, something that the warrior class was given in abundance. Basically, they had a lot of courage, a lot of spirited be uh, spiritedness, and as a result, they were good warriors. They could lead, you know, a head-first charge into battle and have courage in the face of danger. And so victory and mastery are, are two kind of qualities that kind of seemingly go, go inherent with the idea of courage and spiritedness. Uh, especially the idea of victory. I think that's something that Plato talks previously about as, as being a, a kind of a, a goal of the warrior class and that spirited part of the soul towards victory, towards domination. Um, but good reputation is something that I don't think necessarily would have been put into that category. In my mind, that either is, is from, the, uh, from the appetites, from a sense of, of vanity, or from the intellectual reasoning part of the soul where, where uh, Plato would, would, would ascribe that to be desiring you know others to think well of your actions and your reasoning and something like that so that's a little bit interesting I mean I think it's interesting that you would classify that way in terms of you you would you would tend to describe it as either repetitive or intellectual I think so thinking about this now after I said that aloud I actually could see a very good way how that could be part of, of spiritedness where Good reputation in spirited activities yeah. is pretty obvious. Like if you have a reputation for greatness in combat, you know that's a good reputation. Right. So if you so having a good reputation is sort of the fundamental fulfillment of a, an arete in a specific um, in a specific discipline, right? Yeah. So I mean, you are excellent, but are you really excellent if nobody knows who you are? Yeah. Right. No, that's a good point. That's a good point. And so this this the spirited part of the soul, which wants you to. You know, excel in certain you know pursuits. So, does that mean that the intellect, the intellective part of the soul, doesn't aspire you towards towards greatness and pursuits? 
See, uh, I was really thinking about greatness in terms of uh, physical pursuits. You know, okay. things, things, I agree, yeah. things definitely, of the definitely physically, yeah. right? Things that the warrior would do, right? So, in terms of being the best fighter, or yeah. being the best runner, or being the best thrower, right? You know, sort of these physical pursuits of of athletics that would be, you know, something that a, would would look would fuck well upon a warrior, right? Yeah. You know, and it would bring him honor. It would bring him good reputation, right? So it sort of it, it that makes sense. It okay. sort of makes sense to me. Yeah. Could there be could there be a sense in which you know the intellectual soul is fulfilled by good reputation in regards to intellectual activities? Well, well sure, I, I think so, and and I think maybe my initial hesitance of putting it intuitively in the category of of the courageous spirited warrior is mainly the idea in our modern modern culture and admittedly was looking at it through a modern lens of good reputation meaning something somebody thinks of you and so if it's somebody somebody thinks uh something somebody thinks of you it, it's something more intellectual but uh clearly in the context though of, of the greeks their heroes at least in the, in the sense of spiritedness were people of good renown great renown from their athletic abilities right. or their soldierly abilities. But I would also say I think it's impossible for good reputation, as much as I was just proposing that it could be, uh, you know, it could have something to do with the intellectual, I think it can't have something to do with the intellectual. Really? Because intellectual, the intellectual is oriented towards the higher things, the, the especially for Plato. Things, especially for Plato. Especially for Plato, that's a good point. And good, good reputation is a base thing. Good re reputation is like the lowest form of knowledge possible. It's in within the realm of opinion. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, that's a good point. And so it seems to me like it wouldn't yeah. Yeah, exactly. Thank you uh thank you uh Majora 59890. Reputation is is all seeming. Yeah. Right? It has nothing to do with uh it has nothing to do with uh it's not it's not actual necessarily yeah, it's, of, in and of itself. It's something right. it only exists insofar as somebody believes it. Or says it, or thinks it, right? Which, which is not. So uh, it's not properly oriented towards the intellectual, and yeah. so having, so having the intellectual care about something like that would be, you know, the idea of a, a malfunction of the of the soul. So the idea of mastery, I think, is really, really interesting because clearly, switching clearly topics the, now. Well, moving slightly, yeah, okay. away from. I think, I think we can come to the the agreement that uh, good reputation is less related to the intellect and more related to courage and and and. The, at least the spirited part of the soul having ambition and things like yeah. that but mastery i think is something that we could we could delve a little bit deeper into especially considering it in the light of uh philosophers to come because uh, whenever whenever i hear the word mastery in in a philosophical text my mind automatically goes back to that section in descartes meditations where yes mm -hmm. where descartes is describing that through technology and through math and understanding uh, men now possess the ability to become masters and possessors of nature. Mm -hmm. uh, and the idea of mastery is, you know, whenever I think of it now after having read that, I, I always kind of like, huh, I wonder what Descartes would think of this, right? Mastery of, over nature applied to the spiritedness part of the soul. And so uh, maybe maybe reading this too far, too far deeply, you know, forward into history, but it, it would seem like Understanding this in the context of what Descartes describes, uh, do you think that for Descartes, the uh, ambition that drives men forward intellectually nowadays through science is not out of the intellect, but instead out of the spirited part of the soul? Oh. Out of Thumas. Oh. So if we think about it, right, Plato yeah. said that the, the intellect, as you, just, as you just noted, shoots for the highest things. Yeah. It tries to understand the forms, tries to understand, you know, perfection whereas 
the things lower than the forms and lower than perfection is not really the proper object of the intellect, technically so, according to Plato. And instead, that's at least either the senses or apparently the spirited, spirited part of the soul as well. And so perhaps maybe a criticism of Descartes could be that he takes the intellect away from the forms and the transcendentals of Plato and Aristotle and instead places it back into the physical world by arguing that it should have mastery, that through it we have mastery over nature. Yeah, that's actually a really that's actually a really interesting thought there, Charles. I've never had it before. Yeah, you know, it's it's amazing when yeah. you read the Republic. You know, things after, just jump you know, out yeah, at you. Things yeah. that jump out. But that's actually that actually seems pretty accurate. And you know, the idea that we're turning our speculative knowledge and using it to achieve mastery over the world seems like it's at least a little bit disordered. At least a little bit, right? At least because a little bit. Ultimately, ultimately, and I can't remember the broader context in in which meditation he's talking about that, but he. Basically, for context for our casual listeners, Descartes uh, came is kind of the, the quintessential first modern philosopher. Yeah. Um, and he, he was around uh, what early 1600s. Uh, yeah, yeah, sometime in the first half of the 16 yeah. of the 1600s. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, somewhere in that range. Uh, my dates are a little bit fuzzy. And pretty much after after Aristotle and uh, Aquinas in the mid 1200s. From the mid-1200s to the early 1600s, there was basically the only philosophical debate that had any real meaning was over really small niche interpretations of texts or works of previous people or on terms. And basically, uh, when Descartes was, was reading philosophy and trying to understand what these people were, were talking about, he kind of decided at one point that as a thought experiment, we should just blow it all up and start over and start with the things that we could know only only with our speculative intellect, only abstractly. And uh, of course he came to his, his famous I think, therefore I am, when he tried to know, uh, or when he tried to discover all the only truth that he could think of that was true uh, regardless of any sense knowledge was that he existed. And then from that he tried to reason from the idea that he existed to other truths, and that was kind of his, his idea of a starting point. But it does seem to be a little bit disordered to take it, it, it does the, seem transcendental, the transcendental direction of the intellect and move it to the realm of the physical. Okay, but we need to figure out what the proper role of mastery is, because as he yes. says, Thumas is directed towards mastery. And we know from Christian Revelation in Genesis, where God gives man dominion over all of the earth, True. Dominion yes. is essentially just a. It's a, another word for mastery. It's it's a Latin it's yeah. a Latinate word for mastery, right? Yeah. Actually, mastery is also Latin because it comes from magister, I think. So Probably. they're both Latinate, but they're just they're synonyms. They're synonyms basically. Yeah. So yeah. you know, what would what would a proper mastery look like in the context of Christian well, and so we you know, don't, classical we don't philosophy? Often, we don't often get into deep theology on this podcast. This is going to be a relative first. But what exactly is the is the normal understanding of uh, Christianity in terms of the dominion over the world well, usually that God the, gave us. Usually the word that um, is used, I don't believe this is in the Hebrew or the Greek Septuagint, but um, it's uh, stewardship. Um, this is the sort of, you know, modern Catholic, you know, theological term for, um, for uh, this dominion, the exercising of the dominionship that God has um, given to man, uh, and so the idea is, you know, 
using using things in accordance with their natures. Okay. Right. Um, you know, making sure that you know nothing you know nothing is destroyed completely, mm-hmm. but you know, fostering uh, the growth of all things, balancing the different needs of different things, and looking out for the common good of the entire you know. Okay. The okay. entirety of creation. Yeah. Which you know could be seen in, in which could be seen as sort of you know like a ecological sense or also just. You know, it, also in the sense of mankind, in, in, in the sense of growth and prosperity, do you do you think that that's because husbandry uh, of animals was something very common, very commonly mentioned in in the Old Testament, right? Do you think that would also fall under that idea of dominion that there is a some sort of a the, the mastery over that man has over the world should uh, seek to grow, so to speak. The bounties of the world. Yeah, I think that um, to the extent that man can take land that is, you know, not that doesn't doesn't support him, and yep. turn it into land that supports him, uh, is a good thing. Okay. Uh, insofar okay. as it doesn't somehow result in the destruction of other things, so I think you could make the argument that some lands ought not to some lands ought not to be cultivated by mankind. Because hey, if we if we turn all of this wetlands into you know pasture land, yeah. then all pasture land, all the other pasture land downstream will be destroyed in floods. Or, yeah, or yeah. you know, so we need to we need to weigh the ecological impact of, of all of our well, actions. Well, and that's really that's really just looking at the broad impacts of our actions, right. not even from an ecological standpoint. Uh, you know, if if ecologically it's fine, but our actions still harm some other person or something like that, I think right. that would fall under that too. But you know, you describing that brings to mind something I have never thought about before regarding the roles uh, of humans in theology. So what what do you think it means that Christ worked as a carpenter, somebody who chopped down trees and made, you know, human furniture or furniture for man? Is there any significant, you know, significance we can draw out of the job that he did? Yeah, I think it's I think it's pretty um, that's that's something that's been remarked about by different theologians and popes throughout history uh, that Jesus sort of um, Jesus in, in a certain way as a carpenter right is fulfilling the function of Adam that Adam was originally given when he was supposed to you know create things and tend to the world and be a worker right yeah uh, a, a worker in, in as a steward of creation um, but you know I don't know what what else were you did well, you I was thinking, were you, were you thinking, thinking of something specifically? I wasn't thinking of something super specific, but I I was just it hadn't occurred to me before that there was uh, in a sense a a, a a a a very humanist perspective that Christ had by somebody who took natural resources in order to better the lives of man through you know, are obviously the art and science of, of craftsmanship, but it, it's just interesting because we think of, uh, when we think as, especially also of like tent makers, mm-hmm. they would make tents. It's kind of a similar similar situation where they would take the bounty of the land and specifically repurpose it for uh, the life of man to become easier or uh, you know more more rich. And it's interesting that uh, that you know Christ as carpenter. I think is something that maybe we could talk more about at some other point. Yeah. But uh, it's kind of interesting. But moving back towards mastery, when we think about that in terms of Descartes, 
we when we when we think of when we think of mastery over something for Descartes, we often think of something that is more base and that is a bit more divisive. When he's saying that we should yeah. become masters and manipulate the the world around us for our own gain, but when when we look at this in the broader context, initially we were thinking this is a little bit more base, but to an extent that that's what the dominion over over the world kind of kind of is, right? We we take the the bounty of the world and repurpose it for to make our our lives better in right. a sense and so perhaps maybe the mastery over the world that, that Descartes is talking about does come from a spirited part of the soul in terms of ambition in physical things and so the real question is can that ambition in physical things be oriented back towards the transcendental metaphysics Yes, I think it can be. And this is actually a point that I think Joseph Pieper makes, right? The point of work, right, the things that we do every day, right, is to sustain our life, yes. But the point of sustaining life is so that we can achieve the higher things, right? We can do philosophy. We can, you know, make music. We can read poetry. Above all, he says, so we can worship the Lord in the liturgy, right? But these, trans but these sort of things that are good for their own sake, which all reflect some sort of transcendental beauty uh, or goodness or truth, yeah, right? That um, these things are the real reason we work, right? For, for the sake of something higher, using right. something right. that is more physical. Right. Now, the problem with Descartes is that the reason he wants to become the master and possessor of nature is for a completely, completely terrible end. Why, why, okay, I'm going to see if you, if you recall this. This is my interpretation, but let's see if you have the same interpretation as me. Why does Descartes want us to be the master, masters and possessors of nature? I thought it was so that we could be immortal. Yes, that's exactly, yeah. that's exactly, okay. what, that's exactly my, my thought on the subject. Yeah, my, my recollection is that we, could, uh, that we could live forever if we were able to possess and master nature to, right. to, you know, to, the, proper, to, the, to the proper extent. Right. Uh, and of course, you know, this brings into the modern question of people have been arguing that we are close to the generation where people won't, uh, won't see death anymore. Right. Right. And this corresponds to victory. But victory over, 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 over the nature of man. Right. Which victory is... over the nature of man, right? The ambition yeah. is thumatic, right? Ah, mastery in order to is. achieve victory. Yep. Over the nature but, of man. But death. Victory over death. That is not thematic at all. No, uh, there was something glorious about death and battle. Um, and vi when when you were when you were, we don't really think of victory over death. Uh, we more we more think of victory through death for Plato, because Plato thought that the the truest version of yourself was the soul, and that the body was kind of a, a shell or a meat suit that let you interact with the world for a time, but ultimately wasn't your true self, and so. Ultimately, you weren't really trying to uh, trying to live forever. That would actually be very bad from a Platonic standpoint because you would never reach the realm of the transcendental, uh, the transcendentals, and so you would never you would be stuck kind of in a a place of, of less of less being of less actuality. Right, but I think death is death is interesting because it it represents sort of an existential you know pivot point. Right, it does. There's a there's a point of contact between the world of becoming and the eternal world up there, right? And so to achieve victory over death is terrible, 
because it deprives us of an access point to the the the, the world of the eternal. Yeah. Right. Well, what's also interesting, thinking... we're stuck in the world of becoming yeah. eternally, which is scary and well, I would say is impossible. Well, uh, and even, contrary even, to I think Christian even, Christian theology yeah. and classical philosophy, I think. Well, even moving further, when we think what what philosophers followed Descartes, uh, something that you said made me think of the words of uh, of Sartre. I don't know how much Sartre you've read. But, I read a little uh, bit of him. So for, for our casual listener at home, Sartre uh, was one of the main fathers of existentialism, which basically, uh, one of its main components was that you could create your own nature, and that nature came after your existence. And so for pretty much most people before Sartre, for the most part, there were some exceptions, uh, the general belief was that your nature as a person, your nature as an object, as a thing, uh, existed before your creation, before you actually physically existed. And after, after Sartre, people, uh, through Sartre, people started thinking that uh, the nature of man was something that was created by, the each, by each individual man after their birth. And this led to, has led to a lot of things in our current society that, that people could probably draw inferences towards. But ultimately, when we're thinking about this idea of mastery over nature, it, it really, it's almost like at the very core, it's affirming the idea that your nature exists before your existence, but through your act of existing, you have the ability to both overcome and then create your nature. And so it's almost taking a little bit of like a 1.5 turn on Sartre's idea, saying that your essence and your nature exist before your birth, but through your birth and through your intellect, you have the ability to remold your nature into whatever you, you right. so desire. Which, when coming from the idea of a spirited, you know, courageous, demotic nature, does put that above the intellect that looks to order things correctly and towards the good. And so I, I do think we can, we can circle back towards our initial question that this idea of, of mastery is one that should be checked by the intellect. And is something that if if held higher than the pursuit of the good is going is going to be bad for for an individual yeah so circling around so we had good reputation yeah we had victory victory and mastery and mas mastery victory okay and so um we said good reputation is roughly synonymous with honor you know i think so and we've talked about fame before in a previous episode right. and so i think that's probably enough to, to be said about right. that mastery is what did, but what is mastery? Like, did we ever, did we ever sort of figure out what well, we, didn't, what we, we meant didn't necessarily by mastery? say mastery? We didn't define it per se, but our thought behind mastery was that it was a sense of domination and control over the thing in question. And so, the idea of control meaning that you have the ability to change or alter the the physical world. Okay, but I mean, but mastery. What, the way when we want, when we say that the thumos is directed towards mastery, right? We we agree with that, right? In a sense, yeah, to an extent, so, I think it's correct. So we don't have to be Cartesians to believe. Obviously, Plato believes the thumos is directed towards mastery. Right? Yeah. Yes, correct. So, but how is it directed towards mastery in a in a or, in a in a ordered way? An ordered way. So I think I think we were talking about the ordered man, right? So we have the intellect that's informing the thumotic part of the soul, the spirited, courageous part of the soul to act based on the perceptions of the senses. I think it's probably how we would order that, that platonic soul. And so based on the senses, the soul would order the intellect to control or master an element of nature for the betterment of goodness. And so 
uh, that would be maybe maybe where the intellect would understand that living forever would be bad, and so it seeks to prolong life, but only so that you could understand right. you know, goodness better. It's mastery in accordance with prudence, temperance, and, and the other platonic and the virtues. Other, and the other virtues. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Most, f most fundamentally, prudence. Yes, because ultimately, uh, Plato was not a proponent of, of suicide in order to reach you know the realm of the forms. That, that was not something that he believed in, even though he thought the truest existence of a person was their soul, and that you know you should strive towards, towards goodness in the realm of the forms. He, he, to an extent, understood the fact that there was some pursuit that had to happen on the physical level first before you could really attain um, that kind of an enlightened understanding. Right. And he, he shows that in several places. Uh, the Symposium through the latter allegory and the allegory of the cave and the Republic, both of which kind of show that through individual actions on, on Earth and the physical world, you can kind of start to slowly gaze at reflections of the good and then that will allow you to, uh, or that's kind of evidence that you're able to attain the, the forms. Because you know, from from a Platonic standpoint, you don't reason to them, but you recall them from right. when you previously existed. Okay, and then victory. And victory. So victory. What does ordered victory look like? Mm. What does ordered victory look like? Well, so what would what would unordered victory look like? <laughs> Just define it negatively. Uh, what is victory? First of all, I mean, we mentioned we we, we sort of. Touched on this so when we're talking I, about the Cartesian victory over death, yeah, but so just broadly. I think we have to think, when we think of victory in this context, we have to also compare it to mastery, but a specialized kind of mastery, presumably over people, over, over other individuals. When we think of victory, I don't think he's thinking about spiritual victories. He's thinking of... I think he's thinking of... Military victories. Military victories, which makes sense perfectly when you think of the idea of Thumas as being spirited courage you know, soldier of virtue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, he, I, think, I think we can only really think of this in terms of, of military victory, which I think from an ordered standpoint, uh, when, you know, there's a justified war or when you're fighting in the defense of others, I think would be a, a pretty clear ordered victory. And I think to an extent this still existed in the, in the ideas of the Greeks, a victory that is fought well probably mattered more than a victory that was not fought well. You know, just the fact that they kind of set up, uh, or that Homer sets up Paris killing Achilles with a bow as kind of like a cowardly victory versus Achilles's victory over Hector as more uh, of a thumotic, virtuous victory. It was accomplished through arete, excellence. Exactly. Right? I mean, and while technically archery, you know, had a sort of excellence attached to it, it was kind of viewed as like a second tier excellence of yeah, but you're just a bowman, you know, what do you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in certain in certain retellings of the story of uh, of Paris, uh, of, of that particular... That's not in the Iliad. And it's is not, it not in the Iliad? I thought it was at the very end. Uh, the death of Achilles? Yeah. I don't think so. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I mean, it's been a very long time since yeah. I read the, the Pro Iliad. Prove me, prove me wrong. I uh, changed my mind, but... Uh, I'm pretty sure that that's not in the, the Iliad. The death of Achilles is the not death of Achilles in the Iliad. Is not changed in the Iliad. my mind. Uh, somebody in chat says it's not in the Iliad. So, Thank so, you. Yeah, um, thanks, person in chat. Yes, but uh, the death of Achilles is not in the Iliad, and I think certain retellings even cast, you know, the way the way that the way that Paris kills Achilles is kind of like, oh, that was a lucky shot. <laughs> ah, so it even, even <laughs> takes away even less even less from that victory. Yeah, it takes away even less from that victory, right? Although I have to say, you got to be pretty. That's that's either a lucky shot. Or um, it's either a lucky shot, or uh, you know, you've got to be pretty skilled to hit someone in the heel with an arrow. Well, I, that sounds to me like you were aiming for their heart or their head, 
but you didn't adjust for the height uh, and the drop of the arrow properly, yeah. and so it's like, ah, you nicked his ankle. Yeah, but he but just got lucky got because lucky that, that just so weakness, happened to be yeah. the one weak place. Exactly. No one probably knew that. I, I can't imagine anyone would know that. Yeah. It's not an obvious weak point on the human body. Right. Okay, so good victory versus bad victory. You know, the victory of cowards versus the victory of, of bravery. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. Is there any other way to look at good victory versus I, I bad think victory? From a, I think from a Greek perspective, they would think of an unvirtuous victory as something that was accidental. I think that if it wasn't intended, if it was an accident... Um, and I, I even think that if you if you died, it was probably a good victory as well, even if you lost. But like, it's a good victory personally for you. Um, but I, I think it has to do with just excellent behavior. And if if you were trying to strive for, you know, athletic virtue or, you know, military virtue, and and you know, I'm not really sure their views on on prisoners. I know that they typically took prisoners as slaves, and that was viewed as a good thing in general. But I don't really remember. What about um, yeah? So what about conduct after victory? Like yeah, so you have so you have exerted your mastery and you you know you have you have been strategic, but like the way you act as a victor does that make a difference in whether it's a good victory or a bad victory? Well, this, so how do we how do we view how do we view the uh, defamation of the body of Hector by Achilles? Bad. Generally speaking, that was bad. viewed as bad. Yes. Yes. So I think I think we can point to that as a clear example of a victory that was not uh, virtuously virtuously followed I think also we could go to the uh, go to the, the tragedies of Sophocles uh, I'm thinking I'm thinking of Antigone when the conduct after the uh, the Battle of Troy was over was was one also of was it not the Battle of Troy? No, 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 that, no that was no, no, no. Uh, that was. Yeah. You're getting the war, the war, the seven against Thebes mixed. Yeah. Seven against yeah. Thebes, six against Thebes. There's a number against Thebes. A yeah. number of men against Thebes. Yes, that war. Uh, I got that one. Yeah, the 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 way the the way the the victors were treated versus the way the people who were defeated were treated. Correct. By yes. the, so so, uh, yeah, basically how you treated how you treated the dead of your enemy, um, versus how you treat the dead of of your own kin, right? Your own, your own people. But th but there's an interesting point. They were both kin, actually. Yes, yes. And I wasn't going to get into that nuance of the story, okay. but yes. Okay. So I think I think broadly we can say that there was some type of understanding of a good that a that the the conduct following a victory could could make it into a bad victory okay. or at least an unvirtuous victory. Um, but that still was a victory and still did come from the thematic part of of the soul. And then the conduct afterwards, you could almost separate from yeah. From the military action in general, right? But I think that's pretty much all I've got on, okay, on that passage. Um, so do you have anything? Here we go. He says that that one more thing on the passage. This is part of okay. the sentence right before the the three things, the three objects that we took out. He said the spirited part is always wholly set on mastery, victory, and good reputation. Wholly set. Um, so that's just an interesting nuance there, as if we have completely encompassed the definition of spirited part by looking at these three things, which I think is interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that's most... I, I think if you un if you understand uh, mastery also in the sense of mastery of athletic abilities, I think it probably does. Right. Because I think, when I think of when I think of all of the traits that was previously described as traits of the warriors, I think that's pretty much what it comes to. Right. And just to, and to give an elaboration on the passages before and after, right? They're basically characterizing the different parts of the soul. 
the appetitive part of the soul is the is the money loving or the the part which loves to gain gain loving they call it the thematic part is the victory loving and the intellectual part is the wisdom loving yes so and so if you can you know just to just to generalize the soul completely right you know those are the three parts we love to gain we love to win <laughs> we love to gain we love to win and we love to be wise we love to know um, that's interesting. Yeah, I think that's that's, that's mostly. Okay, it. now so let's switch off the platonic mode. Yeah. So so that how was of, that was. How much of this do you actually believe? That's a great question. <laughs> I think I think there are aspects. I'm less of a Platonist than an Aristotelian, um, and I, I apologize. Our stream looks to be having some sort of uh, frame dropping issues, um, but hopefully it hasn't been too terribly bad. Uh, but. In theory, in theory, it should be okay. Hopefully, hopefully, it hasn't been too bad. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think, I think broadly that there's some truth in Plato, and I think that there is a section of the soul that. No, I think there's truth in there, but I mean, how accurate do you think it is? Like, I think, I think in broad topics like this, it's fairly accurate. I think that it, Aristotle does describe a lot more specificity and details regarding the nature of man, and I think there are definitely some aspects of Plato that. Uh, get revision in Aristotle, but I think when you zoom out really far, which is what most Platonic writing gives you is a really zoomed out version of the nature of man and the order of right. the universe, I think that it gives you a pretty good, kind of a pretty good understanding yeah. of what's going on. It's yeah. not perfect, and it's a lot of allegorical descriptions, but I think those allegorical descriptions do kind of indicate yeah, at least the direction of the nature. Yeah, my my, my thought on this is that uh, uh, definitely there there is there's the potential for a much more rigorous analysis of the human soul. And oh, definitely. I think that this is definitely a, a oversimplification, but it serves played it serves Socrates's rhetorical purpose in the in the context of the city and speech project and yes, you know the different virtues and you know it just it just lines up pretty neatly. I'd agree. Uh, but, you know, if you really got and looked in it, you could probably, you could probably, you know, divide out more parts of the soul, and I think, I think you could. That's a, that's a, yeah. That'd be an interesting project for, I, I don't think any real philosophers listen to this podcast, but if you do, from, <laughs> from, from an amateur, from two amateur philosophers to you, to you, we would, uh, we would, we would be interested in hearing a more rigorous analysis of the soul, uh, I think, but me anyways, Trucks would probably appreciate it too. Yeah, yeah. He'd probably not agree, but eh, I have I have my own ideas. He has his own opinions. So, so uh, there was a little bit of time when the stream started, so our clock here is a little bit a little bit behind or a little bit ahead from our perspective. But um, now that we've kind of finished the Republic Roulette portion of this of this podcast, we should probably at least for a few minutes turn back to the uh, the original scope of season one, where we just kind of talk about things. Talk about so, things. Is there anything been going on that you want to talk about? Talk about things. Oh. You well, you you're obviously more prepared for this than me. You know something. You you have something in mind. No, I have absolutely nothing. You in have mind. absolutely as, nothing. As per normal, I can think well, of something okay. you'd like me well, to. Well, you know, I'm just going to go to the first thing I have in mind, which is the philosophical nature of Lacroix. Okay. Lacroix. How do you, first of all, how do you pronounce this stuff? Well, I su I suppose it's probably Lacroix. Lacroix. Yeah, but I'm not. I, I'm only I'm only slightly French in origin, and so I, I have no <laughs> I have no good uh, understanding of the pronunciation of yes. French words. But is Lacroix a fundamentally disordered product? No, I don't think so. No, you don't think so? I mean, so the very fact that you bought it is, is indicative that it's a successful product. Right? No, but I'm talking about like what you know what it is. It's water that tastes like fruit. 
Well, so, but so it isn't the lime. Fruits. The lime Lacroix that you have there is actually an even better example of of something. So, it's basically non-sugary Sprite. Is, is that, that, that is. that's a pretty accurate because it's of... sparkling water. It's carbonated water with lime flavoring, which basically, if you added in some sugar, you have Sprite. Right. Right. But uh, so it's kind of like low-cal Sprite, but <laughs> but it's like not natural like it's so weird it's like <laughs> well so there are there flavor. are like how does it work well i don't know how they create lime flavoring but i do know that there are naturally occurring carbonated springs okay so uh so the carbonated water okay I'm carbonated not, water I'm not fizzy is natural water. yeah um admittedly most most of the time nowadays people uh you know artificially carbonate water but that seems okay um but should water taste like water uh, what? How do you like every water in different parts of of the world tastes different, oh. depending on the mineral composition. So, if you take if you take a reverse osmosis filtered water, where you pass water molecules through a semi permeable membrane that are just only big enough for H two O molecules to pass through, um, you're basically getting relatively pure H two O. Like from a molecular level, you're you're extremely extremely pure molecular H two O. Um, that doesn't really have a taste, but most water everywhere else has uh, a taste depending on the, the minerals and the uh, different metals and such and salts that are in it. I've heard that New York's water, New York's public water, is apparently extremely delicious. Um, I have never experienced it firsthand, and if we have any listeners who think the same or otherwise, we'd love to hear a firsthand account. Yeah, supposedly that's why New York pizza tastes better than pizza from New Jersey. Oh, now that's fascinating. That, that's, about supposedly that. that's what makes New York pizza unique. And every okay. now and then you'll come the across water. a real bougie New York style pizzeria that literally that ships, imports water. <laughs> ships water from New York just so that's they can, awesome. just, just so they can oh, claim man. they have that taste. That's fantastic. I, I'm, I'm a little, I'm not. I actually can see that. I can actually see that working from a chemical perspective because there's. So the New York, I heard the New York water main. There are sections that are made out of wood. Oh that my. Have been, or, that are original from like 180, you know, 200 odd years ago, um, and that that was, you know, the original pipes in New York were made of wood, and that, you know, that's. Over time, you get the right salt buildups, and you know, I guess it's very different. But I've also heard there are part some water that uh, is not so good for you. You know, thinking of uh, Mexico City, you know, Mexican water. Montezuma's right? Revenge. Yep. Uh, stereotypically, gives you food poisoning and, and diarrhea. Well, it's not food poisoning if it's water. Well, water's food, right? It's water poisoning. Water poisoning. Yes, water poisoning. Uh, so I, I think Lacroix is fine. Now I think it's probably a little bit too expensive for what it is, but Definitely. that's dependent solely upon See, our purchasing okay. behaviors. Because if you didn't buy it because it was a dollar too expensive and enough people shared your viewpoint over time, it would become a dollar less expensive. That's just the way of, of economics. But um, the real question is why do you buy the lime flavored LaCroix instead of buying the lime flavored HEB sparkling water that's a dollar cheaper? Of course, I don't think you actually bought that, and so I can't really pin this on you, but. I'm just drinking it. <laughs> You're just drinking it. Yeah, I think somebody brought that. But, uh, you know, why? Maybe this gives you the bigger question. Why do brand name products exist, and why do generic products exist? 
I don't know. I buy generic products almost <laughs> entirely. I am not rich enough to buy name brand LaCroix. In fact, I might I might just have LaCroix. You buy LaCroix for the art. I like that suggestion. <laughs> you right for the art. Look at that. That is aesthetic right there. This is a participation in the be in the beautiful, right? So, funny thing about arts on cans. <laughs> so, uh, back in Hurricane Katrina, um, my family has uh, some Cajun heritage, and uh, there was a flood of canned water on the market due to relief efforts for Katrina. And I don't know if you've ever seen these water cans before, <laughs> Nemec, but, but you know like the 18-ounce beer cans, like the tall cans? Sure. Okay. Uh, those cans that don't have a label, so they're just like the same silver that the top is, with just water in black letters on the front. And I thought that that was actually kind of really cool because I had never seen a can that hadn't been labeled. Okay. Right? And so, uh, you know, I, I think there should be a return to the uh, the minimalist aesthetic. Like Apple products. If you think about Apple products. Oh my gosh. Apple products are notoriously sleek and minimalistic in design. Okay, okay, okay. So uh, what I'm what I'm getting from you is you want all buildings to be, you know, pure white, straight lines. You know. No. No. Okay. Well, if you like, if you like, I just think it's interesting, right? If you so, like so, minimal, minimalistic products, why don't you like minimalistic architecture? Well, I mean, I like some aspects of minimalistic architecture, but I don't. Uh, the. I don't. I don't know. It's interesting because certain brands have mark have 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 label marketing that exists, and that's something like that is a studied science. You know, along with shelf placement, are factors that heavily contribute towards a uh, you know a sale. So why do I buy Lacroix? I don't buy the Lacroix. First of all, at this point, why would out. you buy? Why LaCroix? would I buy Lacroix? Because I was tricked into buying it be by, by, the by the labels. Ooh. So is so okay. So is this can literally, you know, the essence of sophistry? But instead of the truth, mm. it's the beauty. Is is advertisement just beautiful? Ooh. Is 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 advertising the sophistry of the beauty? Yeah, is advertising the sophistry of the beauty? That's a fantastic question. We'll leave you. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll leave, leave it there because <laughs> that sounds much better than everything else we just said in the past five minutes. <laughs> Yeah, so marketing is just uh, the sophistry so of the beauty. Sophistry of the beauty, yeah. Yeah, that's I like fantastic. It. I like it. Yeah. All right. Calling it, calling it uh, is an that episode? The first, is that the, the first of this two-part episode? I think that's the first of this two-part episode. So uh, are we gonna, or do we, how do we do this? Do we, take a, do we take a break or we just keep going? Well, do you need a break? No, I don't need a break. Let's just keep going. All right, so we'll just fix that on the edit for yeah. when we... Uh, when, when we, we go, post when we, the next yeah, when episode, we, when yeah. we post the next episode, we'll just clip it and clip, add an so, intro. And, yeah. yeah. So this is the this is the thirty seconds that only you guys get to hear. Yeah. This this will get this will get removed and uh, it will no longer exist except yep. in our Twitch video yep. that I suppose we. So uh, we were we we actually uh, you know just to, just to extend this thirty seconds to a minute we we actually were actually pretty high there in the viewers. I was very I was very pleased. We had thirteen viewers. Yeah. So at one point, wow, people listen. Great. Yeah. Thank yeah, you for was, sticking with us. Uh, if you're still listening. All three of you who are still listening, apparently, uh, uh, we were we are going to have another another episode now. In and Trockstar, I'm guessing, will get to do the roulette this time. But uh, if, it would uh, appear so. But uh, you know, uh, if you would, uh, if you'd like, we can make the roulette shorter this time, and then we can have more time for. I think we about need whatever. to. I think we need to, to do the uh, 
a little bit of a shorter roulette. Okay. Because I think that we've gotten too focused on analyzing the Republic and a little bit less on analyzing the world, which was part of what our, our podcast was fair, about. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, you know, uh, so here you go. And right. if you if you care about analyzing the world uh, or if you like analyzing the Republic better, let us know. Give us feedback. Yeah. Yeah. Send us a, a note at uh, squintingatthegood at gmail.com. Go ahead and or... follow us right now if you're listening, please. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're in all we're in all the places. Yeah, I don't think we have an Instagram, but that's okay. Yeah, you, you don't yeah. want to look at pictures we don't of really our faces. Have, we yeah. don't really have any Instagrammable content except for rip-offs of, you know, Michelangelo or whoever is our, screen, <laughs> our stream start. Raphael. Raphael, right. Raphael, Raphael. That's All right. correct. Okay. So without further ado, Republic Roulette. Uh, let's see. So I'll, I'll try to go kind of in the middle here. Yeah, don't... Get a, get, a, get somewhere in the middle. The boring part. The boring part. Okay, we are in book Everybody five. knows book one is the best. I'm just yeah, I'm Book just one saying. is the best. Uh, book five. Uh, Stephanus Summers... 457A through 459A, and uh, this is one of the, so in the Republic there's like some sections where there's a lot of dialogue and there's really short lines, this one is a, uh, some blocks, so there's there's not going to be as good of good of little tiny pithy things, but um, oh, this is a cool section, I can see that there, but uh, let's see, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-
the individual uh, ordering of man should be brought out in the laws. And, and it's basically Plato takes the idea that the city is analogically the same as a person, just mm -hmm. on, a, on a broad scale. Right, and uh, and this is even elaborated further upon in Plato's The Laws, yes. which comes later. Yes, correct, yeah. But the law according to nature, okay, so are we speaking of the law of the polity, right, of the polis? Presumably Plato's referring to the law according to nature, uh, meaning to be the, the, the nature of the individuals. So we're talking about some sort of uh, implicit morality in every person, and not some sort of... Uh, civilly established law that's in accordance with, uh, you know. Reality. I think I think it's that the civil uh, the civil established law should follow the uh, nature of a person and the nature of of the polis. Okay. Of the city. So law should follow reality. What is yes, the, at a fundamental level? Right. So what is the alternative arrangement? You know. So what is our alternative arrangement to law following reality? Law following reality is uh so if law does not follow reality and we have laws that don't uh they would kind of lack context to an extent right they'd seem arbitrary no they, they they wouldn't just seem arbitrary well, yeah, but, but, but they would they would they would be arbitrary but the people would view them as arbitrary right there'd be nothing in which that uh, if you're if you're a dictator and your word is law and you decide one day that up is going to be down and down is going to be up and so initial decree and that, you know, in all documents, up is down and down is up. Uh, it's obviously not in accordance with reality, at least how we think of the terms. And the only way somebody could understand that is that it is a departure from reality. And so it would just be kind of meaningless in a, in a physical sense, in a real sense, but right. only have legal meaning. Right. This is uh, this is what's called positivistic law. Right? Yes, yes, where it's it's only exists because it exists and is is declared so. Right. Yeah. Law exists because some guy, the With lawmaker, authority, right, yeah. the lawmaker said that that was a law. Yeah. And exactly. what makes and what makes a lawmaker? Well, that's an interesting question. I think probably a little bit outside the scope of this, though. I think maybe something that would be more interesting. All all I'm doing is pointing out that today. Almost yes. no law is according to nature, and all law is according to whatever the lawmaker says it is. All law today is positivistic, for the most part. Uh, in you know, for modern, the most part, in, I'd agree. In modern worlds, in, in places that have been influenced and rooted in modern philosophy. Yeah. Okay. Well, so so positivistic law uh, isn't isn't completely opposed to nature. It just isn't necessarily. Uh, furthering nature, right? Like, I can, I can positive, if, I, if I'm the I mean, ruling, if I'm the ruler, I can... You could incidentally have positivistic law that happen to be the same yeah. as natural law. Yeah, so it's not inherently opposed. It's just most commonly opposed. Okay, but I mean, wouldn't you say that the very fact that we are no longer considering law having any sort of correlation to nature itself be, you know... A, a sort of opposition to not to true to a natural understanding of law so I'd, I'd agree um, when we're thinking of though you know nature and natural laws uh, my mind turns to the state of nature from which laws allegedly come from allegedly allegedly, allegedly. according to several political philosophers 
um, whose names will actually know. We will definitely out these political philosophers in the course. Yeah, mostly mostly Hobbes is what is comes to mind. Hobbes. Yeah, law. I actu- although I actually kind of, to an extent, think that Hobbes's interpretation is relatively, relatively accurate. I think that he goes too far when he says that men are by nature chaotic. But I think if you add the word post-lapsarianly chaotic, I think it works great. Hmm. Um, okay, that's an interesting caveat. I yeah. still think you're wrong. You still I, think I'm wrong? Well, I mean, I think that you, insofar as you agree with Hobbes, is wrong. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's an interesting caveat. Yeah. Ultimately, though, I think that uh, the state of nature from which laws come is probably going to be an important, uh, an important facet of this. But the idea that laws should be based on reality, I think, is an extremely important concept and one that societies today probably don't take to heart nearly as much. But what do you think of? So there's a there's a, there is a certain section of our legal code that currently exists that is completely uh not at odds with nature but just apart from nature and so like you have like your individual corporation and how that is treated by the government through various means and you know companies will set up legal entities that exist solely to uh, you know abide by particular laws and regulations and all of that exists solely because there were laws created that would require it right like there's no there's no uh inherent reason why a company needs to make sure that it has it registers for a legal identifier number and that that number is affixed to you know e- you know this type of legal document and that this other type of number is affixed to another type of legal document right all that is is kind of just bureaucracy to an extent and i think there's a large portion of our law that doesn't really oppose nature just doesn't really it doesn't really. It, doesn't it has really, nothing to do uh, with nature. It has to do with all the artificial, the artificial constructions of mankind. Yes, exactly. Mm. And so then the, the question is: is are those artificial and occasionally bureaucratic uh, constructions of, of society part of man's political nature? Because hmm. what I'm thinking is, on the on the first blush, they're probably they they'd seem to be opposed, right? Because you have you have your kind of natural structure and your state of nature, whatever that is, uh, and then you have, from that state of nature, springs forth a society of different individuals coming together and agreeing to abide by rules, and those rules get created, and fundamentally they seek to benefit nature and you know, help to alleviate suffering and, and prolong life and things like that. And so, to what nature, to what extent are uh, kind of neutral to to you know prosperity or to the nature of man's you know sake. Uh, these extra kind of bureaucratic laws not part of the natural construction of a society. Well, I think that I think that insofar as they sort of accord with you know a natural understanding of morality, I think they participate in the natural law. Uh, but we also have to acknowledge that they are fundamentally, you know, able to be changed too. Oh sure, they're, um, not, they're, they're transient. They, they, yeah, they're transient. They, they can't be changed. And yeah. you know, Thomas Aquinas has something about this when he talks about the law in the Old Testament, right? He's like, yeah, there are things in the Old Testament that um, are always true, right? Mm-hmm. Don't murder, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, etc., etc., etc. Keep keep the Lord's day holy. You know, don't worship idols, things like that too, right? laws that affect both God and man, 
uh, gods that gods that uh, laws that re laws that reflect the relationship between both man and other men and man and God, right? Yeah. And then there's other laws which God gave the ancient Israelites, uh, which only applied because of the certain circumstances. And those are things like, oh, uh, don't boil, uh, don't boil calves in the mother in the in the milk of their mother. You know? Are you familiar with that? No. Why would you do that? I don't know. I th actually, I think this is something to do with paganism. Well, no, no, no. But like, like, is there a? Uh, so this you'd is make a stew. You'd boil milk, and you'd put, you know, beef. Yeah. In milk stew, is that? Well, well, okay, okay. So this is interesting. This is interesting. Like, I've this, never heard of a dish here's, like here's that. Here's the tangent, guys. Here's the tea, guys. Oil, beef, and cream, guys. Well, I'm, I, th I think, I think it does have something to do with paganism, and uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if that was some sort of common pagan, you know, ritualistic yeah, practice. Being a, a pagan ritual, but, of some kind. Ju but you know, modern day Jews when they're trying to keep kosher, they yeah. take this so far as you can't have, you know, to make sure that you aren't doing that, right? Uh, they don't, they don't eat. Dairy products and meat in the same meal. Really? They yeah. don't have meat and cheese. They don't have meat and cheese together. Huh? I didn't know that. Uh, I believe I'm not Jewish. Uh, <laughs> if we have a Jewish listener and you follow the kosher uh, kosher laws, please tell me. But in my limited understanding of the okay. way modern Jews follow kosher laws, uh, you don't eat meat and dairy products in the same meal okay. just to avoid, you know, the cooking of milk and its mother meat in its mother's milk that might happen to your stomach or something like that. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But that's that that was something that God gave them uh, for that specific time and then when Christianity came uh, was not brought brought forward. Right. The, the old law, the old law, that part of the old law passed away and no longer no longer bound Christians. Although there's an interesting case to be made for the old the old law still binding all Jewish Christians. So that's an interesting argument. Huh. Uh, okay. I'm not. I'm not up on that I've never argument. Heard that. I've never heard that but, argument. But there's an before. interesting argument to be made that uh, all Jewish Christians still have to obey the law as part of their ancestral covenant made with God. Hmm. Um, anyways, so like, there's different types of laws, um, right? Yeah. But I think that insofar as a law is oriented towards, you know, one of the fundamental laws. Right, it participates in the natural law. So, okay, corporate. So, let's going back to your question about corporate law, right? Yeah. I mean, what are the points of you know corporate reporting laws, right? You know, uh, you, like uh, for instance, if something if something shady goes down in you know company X, uh, yeah. say Enron, I don't know. Sure. And, company X, Enron. Right. They yes. are required to say, hey, we had this employee that did this thing wrong. We're telling you this now because the law says to like. Okay. Well, yeah. So to a certain are, extent, disclosure laws. To a certain, to a certain extent, yeah. that is arbitrary, though. Like, I mean, the company doesn't have to say anything about that, and it could yes. be the government's job to go find the wrongdoing being done. Yes. No. But the point is obviously to help is to help everyone ensure that nobody is lying, right? Yes, to an extent, right? And so those types of regulations do generally have their origin in some sort of some sort of uh, ethical problem well ethical problem some sort of instance in which a company exhibited some type of wrong behavior and what mm -hmm. that wrong behavior is and how that is determined is something that is open for debate and not necessarily set in stone right so like there are some current laws about reporting 
that did come straight from Enron due to the fact that they were able to hide debt that wasn't reported to shareholders that was basically committing fraud, right? And that's that's something that got addressed in the early 2000s and then the mid the mid uh, mid to late 2000s with the passage of Sarbanes-Oxley. But basically, some reporting laws exist currently to try to make it harder to commit fraud and get away with it, to hide fraudulent activities. And there are some uh, laws in existence now that are trying to promote fairness and um, make it a little bit harder to quote unquote game the system for your benefit, right? Uh, ultimately, I think those laws and their purpose is good. I think that it creates a, a more stable society when you have people choosing to abide by certain laws of competitive fairness and things like that. I think that that. I mean, but okay, but okay, so let's generally take, is so a let's good take thing. competitive fairness as an example. What's the point of Ensuring competitive fairness? Typically to ensure that uh, the end product is the highest quality that it can be. So like a common in, common instance of a monopolistic. Monopolistic. You transfer it to me. <laughs> Monopolistic. Monopolistic. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, part of the behavior of monopolies is that oftentimes the quality of their good will decrease after they have forced competition out mm -hmm. of the marketplace. And so part of the, part of the benefit to, um, to companies having kind of fair, fair trade practices means that over time, quality and price will become correlated tightly so that you, know, you don't have an overpriced, low-quality you know piece of equipment or, or good or, or anything or service even at that point, right? And so generally keeping the barrier to entry low and, and leaving it up to consumers' discretion between uh, products will eliminate this type of behavior. Now where we see this deviation nowadays is uh, large corporations that have a massive amount of following. So like take, take for example Apple products like we talked about previously on this podcast. So you have the Apple AirPods that cost, uh, currently the AirPods Pro are on sale for uh, $200. I wish we were getting sponsored by Apple, but that is not the case. So, eh, know, I would probably take their eh. products and throw them on the ground. Well, That's my opinion of Apple, by the way. Okay, good to know, good to know. Um, we're not getting sponsored by them now, sorry, Trox. <laughs> Indeed. Sorry, Trox. Indeed. But uh, if you think about it, there are competitors. You can go on Amazon and search, you know, wireless earbud, AirPod lookalike, right? And you can find something that's probably about 80 to 90% as the same functionality or has maybe better functionality in one aspect and you know less functionality in another aspect for you know 80% off the price roughly you know 30 to 40 dollars 20, 20 25 to 30 and uh, there's a certain amount of quality disparity between those two as one would normally expect between an expensive good and a cheap good that shoot for the same purpose uh, unfortunately, there is also a brand premium that is associated with Apple products. Part of that comes from maybe their service, you know, warranties are a little bit better. That's something that's tangible. Sometimes it's uh, in terms of connectivity with other devices. Apple does a good job of integrating one device with their whole network, and that has value to some people. Another aspect of that is... It's also the, monopolistic. It is also monopolistic, but it is also... Vertical integration. Yes, vertical integration, but it is It is also, though, it's, it's helpful to some Not people. a vertical integration, horizontal integration. Well, it's not really... Horizontal integration and vertical integration typically refer to places in the supply chain. 
Um, in this circumstance, it's mostly that your earbuds can talk to both your phone and your computer at the same time seamlessly. Right. Right. But if you purposely make it hard for other things to do that, well, yeah, except that your be, product, that would be monopolistic behavior. But it's also but a, that's a type of integration. Wouldn't couldn't you say that's a type well, of yeah, integration? Yeah, it's, it's a type of integration. But the the vertical and horizontal is probably closer to horizontal. Yeah. Integration, okay. That's why probably. that's why I revised my statement. Probably. I don't really know what that is exactly. I know vertical integration is typically in terms of supply yeah, chains, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but ultimately, right, there's a certain premium somebody would put to that connectivity and that ease of access, right? And there's a certain, you know, a certain amount of value somebody as ascribes to um, how that brand is viewed by others, right? Oh, you're the cool person wearing the Apple, you know, branded stuff, right? And you can see that across. So you're selling psychology. You're selling. You're sort selling. Of, uh, you're selling perception. Right. Other so people's opinion. If I'm, if I'm breaking down the cost of this good, there's a portion of it that's due to function, a portion of it that's due to quality, a portion of it that's due to service or warranty or you know some sort of like thing like that, and then there's a portion of the cost that's due to recognition of the brand by others, whatever amount that gets ascribed to by each individual person is different, and then lastly there is a brand markup, right? And that brand markup is you know from a value standpoint is different for every consumer. Some people may not care about the uh, warranty or the quality or the functionality and will only care about the brand recognition uh, by other people, and that's where they put that entire $200 of value. Those people generally are not people who, uh, you know, <laughs> live too virtuous of lives, because that's pretty, pretty much okay. just a vanity purchase. Okay, that's, 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 that's an exaggeration. Probably an exaggeration. That's an exaggeration. Probably but that's most definitely not me and you. Well, no, I mean, in general, though, the idea of, of it's not necessarily inherently wrong with that, right? But it, it's a different way of basing your purchasing yeah. priorities, right? But people serve towards those people, too, and that's why those, those products, you know, are priced the way that they are. Is that the, the average of people trying to purchase these yeah. decide that's how much they're worth. And so, you know, it, it is what it is <clears throat> to an extent, but I think that when you create bureaucratic laws that make it harder to transact openly, right? There's a, a cost of regulatory compliance, so you have to file, you know, 44 different documents in order to trade in this marketplace or something like that. I think that makes it harder to uh, transact. It makes it harder for smaller companies to compete at the same level. At the same level. Or not, not just at a level, period, sometimes. At the, no, but at the, at the same time, right? What are the point of these laws to ensure competitive fairness, right? So if there's a law that says, Apple, you can't you can't make your earbuds only compatible with you know your iPad or something well, like that. So I can what is you, the point of a law like that? I can give you maybe a better example in the case of a, a company that did wrongdoing according to the law and as was decided. Intel had a uh, around a nine billion dollar lawsuit with AMD in the early two thousands, where Intel went to and, and both of those are, are software or computer chip manufacturers, hardware manufacturers, hardware manufacturers, yeah. And uh, Intel went to distributors who were distributing you know, like Dell computers, HP computers, and those types of things, and paying them money to not stock AMD products, uh, or products containing AMD hardware. And so they would give, you know, your your Circuit City or your, you know, Micro Center, your Best Buy money to only sell products that had Intel in it. And uh, federal courts ruled that was a no, a no bueno under the current trust laws. And you know they had to pay, pay damages, right? But 
those types of laws. Well, the damage was probably done already. Yeah, unfortunately, the damage was was was, was done, and you know, yeah, that was. By the time antitrust, you know, law laws start to be you know enforced, usually the competition's already dead. Generally, or you know. Okay, but what is the, but what is the point of laws like this? I mean, you you seem to think that sometimes these laws are bad and they get in the way of. Sometimes I think laws the creation like of this competition are, and stuff like are that. Bad. But but what is the point of them? Like mo like you think they're just arbitrarily established positivistic laws, right? For the most part, I think the point of them is to. I think you're missing. I think you're missing the point. If you, I think you're missing the point, though. If you, if you okay. think of it that way. How, how, what, what do you think the point of them is? It's to prevent. It's to prevent people from stealing. So it's just. You think it's just theft is the right. You run a monopoly. Mm. You, you so you run a monopoly, right? Okay. No yeah. one else sells. You know, bread. Oil. Oil. Yeah. No one else sells oil, right? Yep. You know, uh, what would be the fair market price for oil versus what you charge? Right, you obviously will charge higher than whatever the fair price is. Presumably. That is a, that is essentially stealing right there, right? Ah, so okay. laws, law, most laws. You so know, my, my 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 argument before was that the fair market price, like the inputs that determine the fair market price, are vast, right? Depending on each individual's you know value they ascribe to things, and the only way you have a fair market value is if you have enough individual transactions to create that that marketplace, right? And so. We see this all the time in... Um, well, then we don't even need to speak of a fair market value. We just need to speak of a fair value, a fair price. But to have a fair price, in my opinion, you need to... Unless, you're, unless you've carried a fluke, right, or a you get lucky with your price points, it's typically a... Because a fair price now isn't a fair price later, either due to inflation or due to changes in the need for the product, right? And so, for instance, what do you think the fair market price dollar inflation equivalent, you know, just ignore that. You can think of it in today's dollars. Um, what do you think the fair market price of a VCR was in 1995 or 1998? Uh, well, I think you could look at it a different way. Well, no, I'm just curious. You know, it might be harder to find a VCR nowadays because there's less demand for them and less people are buying them, yeah, so okay. manufacturing costs it, are more expensive. So, honestly, a VCR might be more expensive today than it was in 1995. So, so Nemec just gave the uh, the stereotypical debate answer uh, <laughs> that he uh, that he is very rarely gives, actually. Um, yes, I feel like technically I, I, that's I feel true. Like, I feel like being a sophist today. Yes, technically friends. that's true. It's possible that finding a new VCR is harder, and so they're more expensive. Okay. Okay. Yes, sure. True. Theoretically, but, there was more demand for VCRs in 1995 than today. And so, so there's more been... there's more real value associated yes. with them then than there is now. There is still value to them now, and there's still value, you know. I still have VCR tapes. Yeah, exactly. Right. But uh, we see in that circumstance, it was the the need for that good diminished pretty severely over time, and so the fair market price. Presumably, the things being equal is lower now than it was before. Yeah, assuming that production of VCRs did stood the, stood yeah, the same. Yeah, which of course it didn't, and so you know you could argue that the prices stayed the same, and due to production <laughs> cuts to match demand, which yes. is how one would actually do that if they were in the business of selling VCRs, um, which would be a bad business nowadays. But uh, ultimately, right, we see this uh, we, when we have low liquidity in a marketplace. So there's either few producers or few buyers or few sellers or anything like that. We get price mismatches where the price of the of the value of the good does not match a fair market. Um, which isn't to say that the market is unfair, right? And so I can think of, of plenty of examples of energy products that are traded in very illiquid markets. Um, 
and the price that, that currently is listed as the average price for the past you know thousand transactions or something like that does not ac accurately reflect the current price that it would really be to you know buy gas at a particular point or something like that but uh, that's not due to the market being unfair but just illiquid right and so I think when we think of fair market price it assumes perfect competition because that's where you have and, and you know ample liquidity and things like that because that's where the price a producer is willing to sell it and the price that a consumer is willing to buy it okay meet. I'm modifying my terms okay which by the way is the the place of uh, equilibrium the between demand and supply fair price versus a just price ah here we add a whole new layer of fun yes okay so fair fair seems to me to be justice in a procedural sense Okay. Uh, but just so procedurally just versus right. versus actually just. Okay, well that's arguing that procedural justice isn't justice. Procedural justice is not necessarily actual justice. I think that's that's safe to safe to be said. Don't okay. Think so? so why would procedural justice exist if it was not in accordance with actual justice? Why would we call that justice? Because so typically, I'm thinking about this this from a, a nomenclature perspective. Typically, when we add an adjective to a technically another adjective, but a noun, right? We create a subsection of of that noun. So, procedural justice would be justice as it pertains to procedures. At which point, there wouldn't be something that was procedurally just, but also unjust, because it would just be procedural injustice, right? Well, yeah. So here, so here we go. Justice, justice in 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 terms of procedure, right? That every step of the procedure was carried out correctly. Okay. The only problem is, what is what is regular justice correspond to, right? Actual so, persons. So maybe you could say uh, personal justice versus, you see, procedural justice, what, what's, the, what's the point of the procedure? The point of the procedure is to, is to uh, have some sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's a method of achieving justice okay. it's a it's a it aspires to be a method of achieving justice the problem is, is that methods are almost always imperfect well there, there is there can't, there's no master method of justice so it would seem to me that your question therefore is let's compare an imperfect attempt at justice versus true justice right okay well I would say that true justice is better because it doesn't represent a failed attempt right but I that, think that that's kind yeah, of a procedural a justice dichotomy. No, so so you think that procedural justice is the essence of justice? I think that it's an attempt at justice. That the only way you could achieve justice in transactions is to have a sense of procedure, and that that procedure will always have imperfections due to it existing in an imperfect world, right? So if we take this out of the world and say that you know we're creating a just society mm -hmm. and in that just society we'll have laws ordered towards the the just good of the people and there will be a procedure um, that is enacted judicially to create that just effect in the individual I think that that would be synonymous right you just have a subsection of justice related to transactions and through procedures, right? And but so if you had a if you justice. had a procedure that was designed to lead to justice, yeah. which led which because it's imperfect led to some to some extent injustice. Yeah. Then you would need to refine the procedure over time, slowly as you can as you're able to. Right, but you just you said yourself that you could never achieve true justice by the means of one procedure. No, generally not. 
Right. So, but you were you were sometimes able to recognize. I'm going to say that always you need prudence to be able to recognize that yeah. injustice has no, been absolutely. done. Right. But if you have prudence, you could able you could be able to recognize that that a procedure might have generated injustice, and thus the just thing to do would be to act contrary to the that procedure, well, in order to correct to correct to correct injustice. So uh, this is a procedure, mind you. It's something established. It's it's some sort of it's not arbitrarily. It it's some it sort of law. Yes, it is. It usually is a law. I mean, so so one could argue, following from the Thomistic sense, that it wouldn't really be a law at all if it wasn't oriented towards no, justice. No, it, no, because the because procedure because proce the procedures of justice are oriented towards justice. It's just like you said, they don't always get you there. So what? Uh, there's a, the, there's a Thomistic answer to this too. This is true. What if what if the cause of that procedural shortfall? Uh, is not due to the procedure, but due to the enacting of the procedure or the carrying out of the procedure. Well, then that the would agent. have been that would have been that would have been that would have, that would not be procedure. It's not just it's not procedural injustice. It's that procedural justice was not even done itself, mm, okay. right? So some so a man a man a man was convicted of a crime because the DA, but the DA with even though he was innocent because the DA withheld exculpatory evidence, right? Yeah. That's not that's that's not procedural even procedural justice was not followed. Procedural yeah. justice was not achieved. Yeah. Now, for instance, if a man who was didn't commit a crime, you know, but procedure was followed and he was still found guilty, right, you know, that happens. Yeah. That happens too. Yeah. Uh, that is proce that, that is procedural justice. But we would say that's still a shortcoming of procedural justice because at that point the uh, procedure should have been refined to eliminate that eventuality, right? But we but we've determined that that's that's more or less impossible. Well, near term, right? We 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 try as a society to refine our laws as we go, right? We we don't try to create yeah, you know, crappy but, laws. Okay, but do you think that we, do you think we can achieve? Do you think that we can refine our procedures to achieve? I think we perfect can, justice. No, okay, but but we don't shoot. We can shoot for perfection and get close, right? And I think all you have to do is get close, right? But as long as you're getting close, you're still not there. And there's a net. There's it's necessary to have a. There's necessary to have a, a non-procedural method of attaining justice. Okay, how would that be? Thomas calls this epikeia. Okay, so how would that how would that actually exist? Uh, so basically, um, here's an example. The law says. Uh, no one's allowed to open the gate of the city when the city is under attack, right? Okay. Okay. Say the troops are retreating into the the troops the troops you know the troops the troops have gone out they are fighting they lost the city's under attack now they're yeah. retreating to come back to the city. Yeah. Does it make sense for the person who's standing watch to violate the law to open the door to let the troops back in or just to let them get slaughtered so outside? Why shouldn't the law just say it's not lawful to open the gates of the city while the city's under attack unless there's troops out there that are retreating and that you can get them back into the city and then close the door? Well, I mean, the law could say that. Well, then you should follow it. But the law doesn't say that. Okay. The law, the, the procedure is imperfect. Ah, the I procedure see, okay. is imperfect. I see, okay. Okay, we haven't refined mm -hmm. it that far yet. But it, I, think it's, I think it's safe to say that no matter how far we refine the law, we'll always run into situations that are like that, that are outside the law. That's true. So, you know, obviously in that circumstance, the, person, the moral thing to do would be to violate the law, because at that point... Law wasn't really a right. law optimistically anymore. Right, and so if you are the person responsible for the law at that point, using your prudence, you can invoke the virtue of epikeia 
and you know violate the law for the sake. In English, this this the the term is equity, and so yes. I don't know if you've ever heard of equity law, which yes. isn't actually law. It's actually yeah. equity because it doesn't follow the law. Yes, I've heard so. So this this very debate has happened. Um, law versus equity. About five or six times in the debate league that I was in, in different format and different variations in different language, right? So, like, there was one that was very uh, procedural. It was uh, whether uh, due process should be followed versus discovery effect, right? And so, do you vol violate uh, due process laws to, you know, use the heat-seeking cameras to find the drug dealers that are growing, you know, marijuana in their garage, right? Even though you don't have a search warrant, um, right? Is that just? Or is that not just and you know those types of things and there was also you know uh, fair laws versus equitable laws was, was right. one you know, stuff like that's a very common debate to have and there is unfortunately no great resolution I've found to them because you know all of them end up getting into the situation of imperfection in man that right cause problems well here's the other problem right they all have to do a specific concrete situation exactly. you can't talk about them outside the context of a, exactly. a particular situation hypotheticals aren't really good for talking about no. this second of all the person who decides what what is better for justice equity or procedure right yeah clemency or you know, you know punishment you know no, that's a good point. Right? That's that person point. is only the ruler who should be prudent, who should be wise, who should be able to tell which one is actually more conducive to justice, right? And so, so us as individuals who haven't been formed in wisdom probably, you know, and who aren't in this situ in this concrete situation as the ruler who is responsible for the care of the community, yeah. who has a view of the common good, all of these things is more or less, you know, useless for us. So at that point, then uh, moving backwards. Yeah, to I want to circle this. I want to no, but can, can I can I circle this around yeah, to yeah. something back earlier? Yeah. So this was talking about. So we were just talking about you know this, this concept of procedural justice and versus you know equity, which might be used to get to true just to to make up for the failures of procedural justice, right? Equity, yeah. then, which makes us the failure of procedural justice. This doesn't just apply. I I think in the realms of you know in the realms of politics, you know, law, punishment, crime, etc. I think this certainly could apply even within the forms of, of other relationships between mankind, right? Uh, you know, business, to, so, you know, um, the, uh, what is it called? Um, consumer and... Um, consumer and producer behavior. Producer, you know, like a client and business and client, right? Yeah. You know... Uh, mother and mother and mother and daughter, right? So, uh, you know, different relationships to humankind, interpersonal right? Interpersonal relationships. Interpersonal relationships, right? In fact, in the family, like everything is equity, and none of it is procedure for the most part. Yeah. Right. But even in the realm of business, right? I mean, do we really need to? I mean, yes, procedure is good, but we have to. We have to. We have to leave in in here that what is just is not necessarily just following the procedure, being fair. True. I will. I will say that unfortunately, in the current regulatory environment of corporations, it is almost always the more equitable thing to do for the most people to follow the law, due to mostly strict penalties of not following the law. So, for example, there might be a law procedurally that exists that does create injustices. However, the fine for disobeying that law would bankrupt your company. As an right. example, at which point 
yeah, you know, you probably shouldn't follow the law because it is a bad law. It doesn't really exist from a, a legal perspective, from a Thomistic standpoint as a law. It's not really achieving justice. But if you don't and get caught, the company's bankrupt and the livelihood of, you know, tens of hundreds of people right. is, is but affected. I think But I think it could, it could work on other ways. Like, for instance, when you're paying your workers, right? Sure. You could pay the market value of, yeah, which they of, of wage labor. Which you should. Or... You could realize that you know certain workers, right, might need more, and even though you know you might be compensating them more than what you know the fair value of their labor in a procedural sense is, you could compensate them based upon what they what they need. You know, oh, this person you know has you, eight kids; they need more money. How do you know that they need more money? Well, you have you have well, an, thinking about the market rate, right? Mm -hmm. Suppose uh, we, we, this this case oftentimes gets pushed forward theoretically without putting it to specifics. Um, if you are paying a market rate to all of your workers, and say you have two workers at equal positions, say one has a family with two kids, one has a family with four kids, how do you? How is the the business supposed to know that uh, the like what? What if the rate? What if the market rate is just for both? Like how do you how do you determine the individual needs? Why why is it the corporation's it's, job to determine the needs of the workers versus the workers' jobs to determine their needs and act accordingly? So here's the problem: it's not the corporation deciding; it's the supervisors who decide, right? It's the it's the management who decides. Yeah, but the management of the company and the company as a whole are relatively synonymous in this standpoint, right? So okay, like the sure. compensation oh, committee okay, of the corporation. But it's people. It's yes. people. Yeah. It's people. People have prudence, right? Yeah. They are able they to should. look at they are able to look at the concrete situations and it works much better if these people actually know these people. Right? Well, sure. But if but, you're if you're at a scale where real knowledge of another person is possible, it's much easier to do this, right? Why is it not the response? That seems to be taking the responsibility of caring for yourself and for your family away from you and placing it on the compensation committee of the corporation. So as an example, suppose you are uh, you know, a parent of several children and you decide you need X dollars based on the, the, the you know, uh, lifestyle that you want to live to raise your family and that's, that's what's needed and the fair market value of your current employment is X, which is less than that number you've decided upon. Why is it not anyone but your responsibility to either adjust your lifestyle down or seek either other employment in a different role or you know, some other, some other uh, means of compensation. Because the care of you and your family and your children is not solely the responsibility of you, it's the responsibility of the entire community. So, uh, if you, okay, Truckster, so, mm -hmm. okay, let's just look at this from a practical perspective, practical okay. perspective. If you want to prevent different types of social problems, so juvenile sure. delinquency, right? Yeah. How do you best accomplish that? By having good families in the first place. Sure. How do you best? How do you best? You know, provide good families by 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 paying parents enough that they can be at home with their kids, etc. Okay. You know, th this is just this is just a, a hypothetical. You know, pr completely practical example for your own benefit. You want to avoid juvenile delinquents. So, you know, but graffiti here's my, in your but here's house. Here's my point. Here's right? my point, though. Suppose a corporation does that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Pays you know disparate wages depend depending on perceived needs 
right? Because they ultimately are only ever going to be perceived needs because they're not the people actually living that life and needing those needs, right? Perceived needs. Uh, well, obviously, you would ask the person to a certain extent, right? There's, 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 there's a way in which the setting of a wage is is coming to an agreement over, you know, what so what, what if, each people think is fair compared to the relative situations okay. of, of the of the employer and the employee. Okay, right? sure. Uh, there's, it's not like we're. It's not like the, the the compensation committee is just deciding arbitrarily. Oh, look, he's got five kids. He's got four kids. Right? We're gonna pay him two thousand dollars more. That's just that's just a different form of procedure. Yeah, that's just a different form yeah, of no, procedure. That, that was kind of my point. Okay, so I'm uh, look, I'm talking about a I'm talking about a, a, a prudential form of mm -hmm. of of compensation, which uses procedure to aid. I'm I'm not I'm not arguing that there's no place for procedure in this. But ultimately, the final, the final, the final, the final call is given to the intellect rather than so, the, 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 in, the intellect in the individual circumstance, right? Someone's virtue, as opposed to an abstract, an abstract construction of someone's intellect, you know, 20, 20 years ago when this company policy was written. Yes, so a person in chat asked about if this is the what happened at the factory in Atlas Shrugged. I've actually never read anything by Ayn Rand. Um, have, have you? I have not read Ayn Rand either, but just knowing, just knowing a little bit about Ayn Rand, I have a feeling she and me disagree a lot on this, a lot on this. So, uh, you know, if it didn't end well, I mean, I would chalk that up to Ayn Rand's ideology. Um, yeah. So I understand where you're coming from to an extent, and corporations and individual and, and 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 you know supervisors do have a responsibility to pay their workers justly. I, however, think that a market rate for the the work done is just based on the work done um, and that uh, you know there's other there's other factors that could come into play you know, like quality of work and you know speed of work and other things like that but genuinely g generally what, what the corporation is paying for is the services of the employee and the work product that that employee is creating and where do you where do you draw the line of once you start once you deviate from a market just a market rate for an employee. How do you determine from a procedural justice way how to properly pay people without opening the door for abject discrimination uh, that was negative or um, you know inappropriate compensation? Oops. Okay. So here's this is this is the interest. This is the this is the proceduralist argument right here. Right. Well, I, I'm not strictly right. a proceduralist. If we, but I'm if, curious. we if we leave if we leave it up to if we leave it up to you know individual people prudence you know justice more injustice will be done because people are bad people they're going to discriminate you know well i'm just also like procedure procedure is a better approximation of real justice than prudence is well no so but i'm just arguing that people don't have prudence right yeah, that, that, that's that's what i'm saying right yeah i think prudence I think... prudence is malformed in most people therefore Therefore, procedure is a better. It's not is that it's better... malformed. Most procedure allows for deviations, but uses procedures to check the possibility of uh, prudence not existing, right? And so, typically, compensation committees do have a leeway to pay people above market rate if there's a reason and you know it's presented and they agree with it, right? Right. But there are procedures set forth to bar against you know. Mostly okay. a negative, and, a negative, and, and, just, and, and, you know, effect. And I think, and I think, like I said, I think procedure plays a role. I think we're just arguing this, like you know, like you know, 
we're just arguing with different emphases here, you know? Probably. Probably. We're just yeah, I'm pretty sure if you say here. a balance between the two is what you want, and, you know, yeah. a lot of moderation with well-structured procedure to prevent, you know, misconduct right. is probably good. But I think but I think the point is, well, why are we letting people who don't have prudence be managers, ah, yes. be rulers in our society? Well, that's unfortunately, we still need to refine the procedures of selecting the people who <laughs> run the procedures. <laughs> No, that that is the that is the big problem. Right? Well, I so. think I, well, I think the problem is is that people don't care about prudence, and they're not thinking about prudence. And so the first step in I think it's fixing, poor education. It's always poor education. <laughs> poor you know, education. But they the, were educated better in the ways of prudence. The first step in fixing these problems is getting people to realize that we should be putting the most prudent people in charge of things. Yeah. Now, prudence is not the same thing as intelligence. Not the same thing as most book learning, right? Prudence is something different, right? It's actual wisdom, but we need to, we need to be able to learn how to recognize that and put the most prudent people in charge. So, should the the people who are uh, in most terms of able to yeah. be and understand prudence and wisdom be the people in charge? What is that, that you said? That people that, that prudence is wisdom, and we should make a system that puts the that understands and defines the most prudent people. And puts them in power. No, I don't think we should make because they will make they will they I don't will make think we the most ma prudent decisions. I don't think we should make a system. I think we just need to teach people that we should put prudent people in power, okay. and then prudent people will put well, not prudent but, people, but people who have been educated to recognize prudence at least a little bit will naturally help put prudent people in power. So, so you're basically arguing for uh, Plato's philosopher king. <laughs> that the certain gold-sold people are able to understand prudence more and that we should put them in power because they're the ones that can understand the common good and what's best for the group and that those are the people that by nature are best at this. Yeah, but I don't think that, that has anything to do know, with your soul. You, know, <laughs> you don't think that we have a little gold filling, you know, yeah, a little no, bit of gold mixed in? Yeah, but okay, maybe okay, maybe <laughs> I am just arguing for the Republic. But <laughs> You're literally just arguing for the Republic. Oh, oh my gosh! Oh, well, good times, good times. Yeah, good for times. real. When you when you you circle all the way back to to start starting to just argue for Plato, and you know. there we have ended Republic Roulette. Uh, <laughs> maybe I don't know. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, the, I I think we've uh, did a pretty good job of exhausting this topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. I think so. Is there anything uh, in conclusion that we in want conclusion to, uh, want to discuss and bring up or extend? I want to make a pun with prudence, but okay. I can't think of anything that rhymes with it. You know? Oh, oh, prudence. I, uh, I don't know. You set yourself up saying like you wanted to make a pun, but didn't actually have a pun to make. I didn't have a pun ready. Oh man, you're killing me. Why even mention it? Now Why you got, you got all of our listeners excited about an awesome pun with prudence. Yes. And just under delivered. Under deliver, under delivery. This is why I should not be in charge because I don't have enough prudence to realize I should have done this in the first place. <laughs> you should. There have done you go. This. I know that I have no prudence, but does that make me prudent? I'm not sure. Well, if you're Socrates, that would make you wise. I am prudent about the fact that I have no prudence, but that paradoxically makes so me more it, prudent than other people. Yes. Yeah, so wouldn't that prudent from a prudence perspective? Wouldn't uh, <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't that wouldn't that are, uh, mean that uh, you know your own capabilities, which means that you are acting prudently oh by gosh. you know knowing that you're not meant to be in but charge? But maybe this is just because I don't actually understand what prudence is. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, but then you couldn't be acting prudently. But... Well, yeah, but the fact that I think I have no prudence probably just means I don't know what prudence that is. That you have really. prudence, but you don't understand the prudence that you have, or that, um, that you don't understand prudence in general. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I got you. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I, I think that's a good point, uh, person in chat. If Nemec was actually able to gaze at the good, he would already have the pun, and the uh, the lack of the I pun like that. That brings us around to the comment we made last a episode. kind of analogical self-awareness. Life is analogy yeah. to all of being, and the very fact that I have no pun is just a reflection of the similitude of not the similitude, the fact that this world is only an imitation of the greater world. Yeah, it's a good point. Okay, it's a good point. Wow, well, I think on that note... <laughs> on that very deep metaphysical note, I have think a, this, yeah. uh, this, this will come to an end. And yeah. Have uh, a great day, folks. Have a great day, folks. Thanks for listening. Yeah, think prudently. <laughs>